Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're having a great weekend. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I am the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And since the beginning of this, uh, of September, uh, we've been walking through the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. And in the first chapter of Exodus, we took this kind of 30,000 foot view of what was happening for the people of Israel. And we saw that they were involved in incredible slavery. They were, they were slaves in Egypt and, and Pharaoh was incredibly wicked trying to control them and in some ways to destroy the nation of Israel. And then when we came to chapter 2, it's like as if the, 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 we just zoomed in right all the way onto the life of one little baby. And then later one man, a man named Moses. And we saw how God rescued him and, and chose him and how he grew up to be a prince of Egypt. And, and there was this sort of sense, this kind of underlying feeling like maybe, maybe given his, his position and his power and his heritage, that just maybe this would have been the guy to rescue the people from slavery in, in Egypt. But as we saw last week, in a botched attempt, in a failed attempt, uh, he tried and utterly messed it all up and ended up fleeing into the desert, into the land of Midian, where there he married the daughter of a local tribesman and, and in many ways kind of faded off into the, into the, rear, view mystery, uh, the rear view of history and just left, uh, left the people kind of without any, any hope at all. And this is where, where we want to pick up the story now at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And now, and it's now it's like, again, if the story swings back from the life of Moses back to look at what's happening for the people of Israel, back to the 30,000 foot level. And at the end of Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, this is what it says next. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You know, the king of Egypt died, which you would have think you th would thought would have been good news. But it turns out the policy of slavery continued on just as brutal as ever. And in fact, by this time, the people of Israel had been in, in bondage to slavery for many generations, several hundred years, with no end in sight. And now... And now in their desperation, they cry out to God. In fact, here the, in Hebrew, it says they, 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 well, it says they groaned under their slavery. They cried out for help. They called out for rescue. Three different Hebrew words. One that means intense grief. And the second one that means bitter distress. And the third one, which means painful agony. These are the words used to describe the desperate prayers of God's people. Have you ever prayed those kinds of prayers? Prayers filled with, with you know, intense grief and, and bitter despair and, and painful agony. I mean, have you ever asked God, God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of this? God, if you're a good God, if you're a loving God, if you are indeed sovereign like we keep talking about in this series, then why am I here? Why, why aren't you doing anything about it? Uh, this uh, this uh, lady, Joni Erickson, uh, who in her youth was in a diving accident and broke her neck. And she tells about how uh, when she was in the hospital and realized that she was a quadriplegic, she would never move from the neck down, how she was just lost in, in desperation. In fact, at night when no one was looking, she would rail her head against the pillow, trying to break her neck higher up so that she could die. And when that didn't work, they took her home and she refused to get out of bed. She told her sister, as she said, close the drapes, shut off the lights and close the door. And she just, she just wanted to die. She said it felt to her like, like she was a used cigarette that God just stepped on and crushed. 
And she just, he, he just didn't care anymore. And she was depressed for a number of weeks until finally in her desperation, she cried out to God. She said, God, if, if, if I can't die, please, please show me how to live. And after that, she would get her sister to wake her up every day and, and to put her in a wheelchair and to wheel her out to a table where there was a Bible on a stand. And then she would put a stick in her mouth and then she would spend hours flipping the pages of the Bible with her mouth and reading it and trying to understand, God, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Where are you in all of this? And one day a friend came to her and, and she got talking to this friend and he said, I want to show you a passage in the Bible. And he turned to Lamentations chapter 3. And this is, this is what it said there. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Surely against me, God turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And she read that. She said, yes, that's me. That's exactly what's going on here. And she was amazed to, to come to the realization that God, that God welcomes our laments, that he welcomes us to, to bring our grievances and our, and, our, and our heartaches before him. See, to, to suffer is a human thing. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or don't believe in God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, when you lived, how rich you are, what work you do, whether you're married or single. It doesn't matter. All of us at some point or another in our life experience suffering and pain. It's a it's a human thing. And all of us cry out. We would say, this, this isn't fair, this isn't right. But to cry out to God, like the Israelites did, to lift their prayers and cry out to God, that's a deeply biblical thing. It's a, it's a deeply biblical concept. And, and it's often one that is misunderstood and ignored in the Christian life, and yet it is so important. You see, lament is the kind of prayer that comes from a heart that is broken, that is experiencing incredible pain and hurt. And it is a deeply honest prayer, but also a prayer that is ultimately redemptive. And it's a prayer that lives in the tension between incredible pain and, and hardship in someone's life and the promise that God is good. It's a kind of prayer that acknowledges that we live in a broken world full of, of heartache and, and trouble, but that God is also sovereign and, control, and in control. And that the prayer of lament lives in that gap, in that tension between the pain and the promise, which means that a prayer of lament is a deeply faith-filled prayer, which means that it is loaded with theology. It is a prayer of incredible hope because it believes in the mercy and the redemption and ultimately the sovereignty of God. And, and the Bible is filled with these kinds of prayers. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's not long, about five chapters. If you've never read it, you should read it this afternoon. It won't take you long. And just read this, this book of Lamentations. But the vast majority of the, the prayers of lament are found in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, and one-third of them are prayers of lament. In fact, there are more prayers of lament than any other category of Psalms in the entire Bible. So this is a very important kind of prayer that we ought to be aware of. And, and prayers of lament, they follow this certain pattern. Uh, they always follow the same pattern. They start with crying out to God. They're followed by a question, usually two questions to God. God, where are you? And secondly, God, if you love me, why am I here? Why is this happening? And people lay out, they, they, they lay out their complaints and their, their concerns to God. And then it's followed by a cry to God to do something about it. But then it ends with, with this trust and this confidence in God. So for example, let me show you an example. Psalm 77. 
is a great example of a prayer of lament. This is how it begins. He says this, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. It starts with the, the writer of this psalm who, as we'll see, is incredible pain in his life. He cries out to God. And he's not silent. You see, when you see what he's doing, it's not like he's just, it's not like he's just complaining. Or he's not just talking. He, he's not just whimpering. He's crying out to God like the Israelites did when they were in slavery in Egypt. They're groaning. They're saying, God, I call on you in this case which is a profound act of faith. Because you see, the temptation for us when we end up in great pain and heartache and misery is not to cry out to God, not not to get really honest with God because sometimes that feels too honest, too too scary, too too vulnerable. The, The temptation instead is for us to withdraw. The temptation is for us to go silent, to give God the silent treatment. The problem with giving God the silent treatment is it's it's the ultimate form of unbelief. It's saying, God, you don't hear and even if you could, you wouldn't do anything and nothing's ever going to change. So why, why should I bother praying? The writer of this psalm, those who do prayers of lament, they start by crying to God as an act of faith. Then the second part of this prayer is laying out of your struggles. If you're going to pray a prayer of lament, you don't want to pray some sort of sanitized, nice Christian version of what you think God wants to hear from you. He already knows your heart. He already knows the thoughts going on in your mind. Instead, you, if you pray a prayer of lament, you need to lay out to exactly how you feel. Look at what he writes here again in in verse 2. He says this, In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And then in verse 3 he goes on to say this, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And then he says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. He says, I can't even sleep. And and I hardly know what to say. And notice, notice that as he prays, there's not some instant fix to his problems. There's no booming voice, no flash of light, no angel that suddenly appears comforting him in, in the middle of his heartache. None of that. And yet he cries out. And then, and then, then he begins to ask God these questions, very pointed questions. In this, in this chapter, he gives six questions. Listen to what he says. Uh, first question, will the Lord spurn forever? God, forever? Were you going to spurn me? And will he never again be favorable? And then the third question, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are you, are you stopped loving people now, God? Or his promises at an end for all time? Was it just in the past and not for me anymore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Man, he asked some hard, pointed questions. Now, does that mean that he believes that God is not loving? That God doesn't keep his promises? That he's unfaithful? No. No, not at all. In fact, we're going to see that he doesn't believe that at all. But it's how he feels. See, he knows the truth. He knows what the scriptures teach, but he's expressing now what's going on in his emotions because often our emotions aren't lined up with with the truth. And yet, it's how we feel. And he lays it out before God in boldness and in clarity and he articulates what he's feeling. And by doing that, by doing that, it allows him to take these emotions that are swirling around in his heart and to present them out, out here and be able to look at them in light of who God is and to be able to see them and to understand 
what's really going on in his world. And you know what? God doesn't have a problem with this. In fact, it's God's inspired word that records multiple prayers just like this. And so he invites us to come with him with these kind of humble, pain-filled questions and say, God, here's, here's how I feel. This is what I think is going on. It's the second part of a prayer of lament, honestly laying out your struggles. But then there's a third part, and that third part is that he goes and he begins to look back at history. He begins to look back at how God has acted in the past as a bit of a, a, bit of a sign to help him think about how God might work in his situation. Here's what he says now in verse 10. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. In other words, he says, I, I look back to see what God has done in my life over the last number of years, his faithfulness. I look at that. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He says, not only am I going to look at what you've done in my life, but I'm going to go back and look through scriptures and see your track record, your history of working throughout all of history. I'm going to begin to meditate on that and remember the kind of God you are. And then, and then as he does that, his, his, his view begins to switch and he moves from the actions of God in history to, to God's character. And this is what he says in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Fascinating to see the shift in his prayers. Starts with crying out to God in agony, then putting these very honest, very pointed questions to God and, and ends with his is confident trust in God. See, that, that's what a prayer of lament does. It walks us through the midst of this kind of pain in our life. And it allows us in the end to, 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 to come to God. And you see this pattern over and over. If you read these kinds of prayers in the, in, the, in the Psalms, you'll see it over and over again. That these prayers that start in pain, ultimately, almost without fail, end in worship in praise to God, saying, God, in the midst of this hardship in my life, I trust you. You are a good God. I praise you. Mark Regop is a pastor. He and his wife, they had uh, three, three beautiful babies. And then they, they, uh, they got pregnant again with a fourth child. And, and just before that baby was about to be born, one morning his wife woke up and she said, something's wrong. And immediately they went to see the doctor. And, and the doctor began to put his stethoscope on his wife's stomach and and, and he looked pretty concerned. And so they, they went into the, to the ultrasound room and they spent these agonizing minutes while they, the, the doctor looked at the monitor. And finally he looked up and he said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And it was only a short hour or two later that his wife was, was lying on a bed in a hospital, enduring the, the pain of labor as she gave birth many hours later to their, to their stillborn child. And he says as he picked up his lifeless daughter in his arms and, and, and just rocked her, he, his heart was pierced with these emotions, with pain and with fear and with, with regret and with all kinds of different emotions. And, and he, said, he said over the next number of months, he, just, he poured his heart out to God. 
And he said he fought this temptation to be angry at God that he would allow this to happen. And, and he said there was such sadness in his heart that it said, he said it felt like it bored a hole in my heart. And, and he, he, he turned to the scriptures and he began looking like, God, where are you? What would you do? Why would you do this in my life? And he says it was only then that he discovered these prayers of lament that had been there all along, but he just skimmed over them. And now he said they jumped off the page at him and they gave him, they were these life-giving words from the word of God. And this is what he writes about these kinds of prayers, this lament. He says this, the gut-level honesty expressed in lament was refreshing and helpful. You see, I knew the assurances of God's love in passages like Romans 8 and others. I believed somehow God would work everything out for his good purposes. I never doubted that. Yet my grief was not tame. It was vicious. I battled fears, disappointments, and sorrow. And in my journey, I discovered the grace of lament, a song I never wanted to sing. However, once I was in the crucible, I was deeply thankful for this uninvited dimension of the Christian life. Looking back, I can see how lament became my guide, my teacher, and my solace. Look, I don't know where you are in your life, but if you're in the middle of pain and darkness and hurt, you need to learn how to pray these kinds of prayers of lament. Not only are they legitimate, they are necessary. And not just if you're in a hard place. All of us need to be aware of and think about and understand the pattern of these kinds of prayers. Because if we're not now, there will come a day when we experience that kind of pain. And we just need to understand that this is how we ought to pray in the midst of the grief and the hardship that we experience in our life. Because, because, because it helps us navigate that, that grief in light of who God is, that hardship in light of who God is. But laments are only possible if you believe in your heart that God is truly good. But if you believe that, if you believe, yes, God is good, then the prayer of lament allows you to take the pain and to see it in light of who God is and in the end to remind your heart of what it is that you truly believe and who God really is. These were prayers of lament. It's what the Israelites did in the land of Egypt as they groaned under the suffering of their slavery. And God heard their laments, and here's how God responds. This is what God says back in, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. This says this, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four responses from God. Number one, God heard. God heard their prayers, and God hears your prayers. Listen, it, it, often when we're in pain, it feels like the heavens are brass, that our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And I just want to tell you, again, you just need to know, God hears your prayers. God heard their prayers. Secondly, it says he remembered his covenant. Now, that doesn't mean he'd forgotten, like, oh, what? what? Oh, yeah. No, no, that's not what that means. Rather, it means that God remains faithful, and he did remain faithful to his covenant that he made with the people of Israel. Now, the... His timing isn't always the way that we want it. It's not, not as quick. But God remembers his covenant that he made, and he kept it. It's true for the people of Israel, and, and it's just as true for us. Only we don't live under the kind of covenant that the people of Israel did. The covenant that they lived under was one based on the blood that was shed of bulls and lambs. The covenant that you and I live under in our relationship with God is one based on the shed blood of God's own Son. It is a better covenant. It is a greater covenant by far. I mean, imagine a covenant 
that you would make with someone based on the, the, the life of your own child, the shed blood of your own child. That's a covenant that cost you so deeply and so dearly that you would never turn your back on that kind of a covenant. That's the kind of covenant that God has with us through Jesus. So in the midst of your pain and your hardship and whatever is going on in your life, you need to know that God will never abandon you. Never, never, never. That covenant, he will never forget. It's the second thing. Thirdly, it says that God saw. He saw it all. He saw the misery and the, and the wickedness and the slavery and the murder and the genocide and, and all the evil that went on. He was aware of it all. And whatever's going on in your world, he sees it all. He knows it all. And finally, it says this, God know, knew. God knows. You know, where others don't fully understand, where, where people maybe minimize something that's not so minimized in your life, where, where people maybe don't believe you or, or, or cause heartache or question or make your pain more, you need to know that God knows. God, God knows. He, he understands it all perfectly, better than anyone else. God knows. And now, in this story, now God is going to act. Now God's going to do something about it. Here's what he does. Look at the next section of verses, chapter 3, 1 to 10. It says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God hears the cries of his people, and now he's going to act. But not with a thunderbolt, not by somehow, you know, magically sweeping them secretly out of the land in the middle of the night. No, no, no. Now he's going to use Moses. Moses. Moses, by this time, he's like 80 years old. He's an old man. He's like a a former prince of Egypt who's now just a shepherd. And frankly, in the Egyptian world, there was no, no job more detestable than being a shepherd. I mean, he was as far away from being a prince of Egypt as he possibly could be. And he wasn't even a particularly successful shepherd. I mean, he's got his little flock there out in the wilderness looking for this, for this grassland to feed his sheep on. And yet God comes looking for Moses to call Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And it's kind of like, God, really? That guy? I mean, that guy really thought he was something, but turned out he was really not anything. 
And, and, and the first time there was any pressure or heat in his life, he just up and ran. And, and we haven't seen him for 40 years now. Really, God? And God's response is, yeah, really. Yeah, really, you have no idea what I'm about to do through Moses. You have no idea what I can do through a man or woman who no longer thinks it's about them, but is just willing to be obedient to what I call them to do. And so God goes looking for Moses, and he finds him out in the, in the Sinai desert, in the wilderness, and he calls his name not once but twice. Now, in the ancient world, to call a person's name twice was a sign of endearment. It was, it was, a, was a sign of affection and friendship. God loves Moses deeply. He hasn't forgotten about him. He hasn't abandoned him. He's been out in, in Midian. He's been out in the wilderness because God has been protecting him and providing for him and preparing him for the call that he has on his life. And so now he, he calls Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. Here, here I am, God. I mean, there's no, no pretense. There's no titles. There's no demands. It's just, this is me. Here I am, God. And God says to Moses, take your sandals off because you're on, you're on holy ground. Now, I've been to the Sinai. I had the opportunity to go there many years ago to hike up what they think is Mount Sinai. And I can tell you this about the Sinai Desert. The Sinai Desert makes Kamloops look like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it, it, you know, it is just so desolate and rocky and bare. It is not God's country by any stretch. And yet God says, this ground is holy. And the reason why that ground is holy is because God is present. It doesn't matter how ugly your, your life is, how hard it is, how dry it is, wherever God is, that area of your life suddenly becomes holy. Because God wants to speak to you in that life, in that, in that part of your life. And God comes now to Moses, and he gives Moses this call on his life. He says, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, and I want you to bring them out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. That's the call on Moses' life. It isn't a call on Moses' life to be great. It isn't a call on his life to be famous or, or important or powerful or even loved. The call of Moses' life is to come and to help set people free from their bondage to slavery so that they can enter a land flowing with milk and honey and ultimately so that they can become the people of God and live in a relationship with God and live for the glory of God. That's the call on Moses' life. And it isn't even Moses who's going to do it. It's God who's going to do it through Moses. I mean, look again, verse 8, he says this. This is God speaking. He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's God who is going to do this through Moses. Do you know that you've got a calling on your life? That God has a calling on your life just as he did on Moses? I mean, he didn't create you just to do your own thing, just to make money and and have a family, and, and enjoy your life. Those aren't bad things, but he's called you. He's created you for something much more than that. And, and, and it's the same kind of calling that he has on Moses' life. Not exactly the same, and yet in many ways it is the same. You see, the calling on our lives is to see people set free, to see people flourish, and ultimately to see them come into a relationship with God, to, to, to know God. 
There's this uh, story in the New Testament about Jesus. One day he goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and uh, he sits down and they invite him to come up and to read from the scriptures. It was a great honor. And so he got up and, and he opened the scroll and he, he opened the scroll of Isaiah until he came to this place. And he read this out of, the, out of the book of Isaiah. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up that scroll and went and sat down. And Luke tells us that every eye in that synagogue was riveted on Jesus to hear what he'd say next. And then he said this, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. In other words, he said, this is me. This is what I have come to do. And as followers of Jesus, that's the call that he has on our lives. No, no, not, that's what he's called us to do. Not in our own strength. He's going to do it. But he's going to do it through us. He's going to do it as he works in our lives. Just as God was going to set the people of Israel free, he did it through Moses. So Jesus wants to set people free and he wants to use us. And just as the calling on on Moses' life was not that he'd be great or famous or glorious. The same is for us. It's not about our greatness, our fame, our glory. Rather, it's about the glory of God and fulfilling his purposes to see people set free, to see people enter into a place where they're restored and renewed and find new life in Jesus and become part of the people of God, to see the kingdom of God go forward in our own lives and, and in our city. And you have a role to play in that. God has gifted you and is calling you to, and has designed you to be part of something like that. And maybe he's left you in the land of Midian for a while because he wants to prepare you and he wants to teach you, but he's doing it with a reason because he has this calling, this purpose in your life. And again, when I talk about calling here, I'm not talking like pastor or missionary. I mean, maybe, maybe for a few of you, but really the kind of calling I'm talking about is right where you find yourself now. Right? Is the person God has made you to be. I mean, what is the calling that he has on your life? 1 Peter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, that's a, that's a corporate calling. That's what you as the church are called to do, to, to, together, to to work together to call people out of darkness, to, to proclaim that God has called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. But later he explains this also in the individual calling. In verse four, uh, chapter 4, he writes this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Do you know what your gifting is? Do you know what it is that, that God has wired you to do so that, so that people would have the opportunity to hear about freedom in Christ and to experience flourishing as they know God? I mean, what, what, what is it that, that God has given you skills with so that, that one day people would be called out of darkness into his beautiful light? And, and what kind of passions has he put on your heart? I mean, what, what breaks your heart? What fires you up? Where do you look around and see a need and say, who is going to answer that need? And, and what door is open right before you right now? I mean, where is it that God has opened a door before you and he's gently and tenderly calling your name a couple of times and saying, this is the door. 
I want you to walk through this one. There, there, are, there are needs to be met, people to be loved, those who, those who need to have hope shared with them and, and to be renewed and restored. And I want to use you. I've, I've been preparing you for this very thing. And, and I, I've led you into the desert so that you would know that you're not to do it in your own strength, that you can't do it in your own strength, but that if you let me, if you walk according to the way I call you and allow your spirit to work in me, I will do beautiful and amazing things through your life, not for your glory, but for mine and for the sake of people who are in bondage and slavery to sin and who need to be drawn into a land where they flourish and experience life and ultimately come to know and be known by none other than God himself. God calls people like Moses and you and me, sometimes the people that we would least think, and he calls them to fulfill his sovereign plans and his purposes so that many would be set free to know the freedom of following Jesus. Psalm 77, you know that psalm that, uh, that we were looking at earlier on, uh, the Song of Lament? I didn't quite read the end. I want, to, I want to tell you how it ends. At the end of that psalm, here's... Here's what the writer of the psalm says. He says this. He's speaking to God. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He says, look, he's looking back. He's saying, oh, I'm looking at the faithfulness of God. And he looks back at the, at the greatest salvation experience in the Old Testament, the Exodus. And he says, look, God, you did it. You led the people through, the, through the, 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 the waters of the Red Sea. But we didn't see your footprints. It was Moses and Aaron, that, that washed up shepherd, who became the shepherd of your people and led them out of the promised land. And, and, and in the midst of his hurt and his pain, he anchors his hope in the fact that God is a God who brings salvation into people's lives, that he remembers his covenant, that he hears their prayers, and that he answers their prayers. And we who live under a greater covenant, we who follow Jesus, we need to anchor our hope and our prayers in nothing, nothing other than the cross, the greatest of all salvation that God has ever done. And we need to bring our hopes and our, and our fears and our pain and say, God, these are how I feel, but I know what Jesus did. And I live in light of the hope that, that that's the hope, the confidence that that's who you are and that you will rescue and that you will work all things according to your goodwill. It also becomes the foundation of the call in our life to go and, to, and to, to, to do what God has gifted and called us to do that others might also know that freedom. This is what it, call, what, this is, this is what it means to live in light of the glory of God in our lives. Would you join me? Let, let, let me close in prayer together. God, we thank you. We thank you for this story again of how you are a God who hears and cares and knows about the things that are so hard in our life and the suffering in our life. And God, that you answer those prayers and that you work salvation. And Father, for us who know you, we, we stand Upon the, upon the work that was done on the cross, upon Jesus' death and his resurrection. And in that, in the midst, uh, on that, we have such confidence and such hope. And God, today I pray particularly for those who are experiencing hardship and pain in their life. Father, may they lift their eyes. May they, they express their heart, but then, then may they set their confidence and their hope on you. And for all of us, God, may we answer your call in our life. Father, to live and to seek 
your will done in our own lives and in the world around us as you work through us for the fulfilling of what you want to do in people's lives. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.